Because damages under the Stark Law are based upon the reimbursement received from tainted referrals, the damages can be quite high. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Episode 3 of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. In today's podcast, I'm going to be talking about the Stark Law damages, fines, and penalties. And what I hope to do throughout the series of episodes is to bring forward live experience or even hypotheticals that kind of drive the point of how complex and complicated Stark Law compliance as well as implementation is. So I'm going to start off this with an actual call that I received from a client. I received a call from a general counsel of a hospital system, and he began to describe to me that they have engaged a medical director for the past three years to provide medical director administrative services uh, for $5,000 a year, and explained that he felt that the compensation paid was fair market value, and the medical director actually performed the services. But through their compliance investigation, they determined that they did not have a signed written contract with the physician. And he said, based upon his research, uh, since this physician was an independent contractor, he knew that under the personal services arrangement or the fair market value exception, that both of those exceptions required that the arrangement be in writing and signed by the parties. And he said that they went to the entire three years without having a signed contract with the medical director. And so he said that he felt that under state law, the physician could bring a state law claim against the hospital for the $15,000. So he felt that paying the physician the $15,000 was adequate and justified. Uh, but as we all know, the Stark Law is looking at it from the government to the payer's perspective. And you know, based upon the government's perspective, since this is a billing statute, even though the doctor could be successful in state court by saying this was an oral contract, if this medical directorship did not comply fully with one of the Stark Law exceptions, then the hospital cannot retain the reimbursement received. So he advocated with me. He just said, well, Bob, I think we have to pay back the government $15,000 because that is the amount of money that we paid to this physician to provide these medical director administrative services. And I told him, I said, well, it's not what you paid the physician. 
It's the reimbursement that you received from Medicare or Medicaid for the referrals from the physician that you had this tainted financial relationship with. And I'm going to use the word tainted. Tainted is basically because there was not a signed written contract, so it did not fully comply with one of the two applicable exceptions. And so therefore, uh, because it didn't comply with the two applicable exceptions, that physician technically could should not have referred uh, business. So I asked him, I said, what specialty is this physician? He said, well, the specialty is cardiothoracic surgery. And I emphasized with him, I, I said, it is not the $15,000. It's the amount of reimbursement that you received for the services that this physician referred to the hospital. He said, I'll call you back. Within a half an hour, I received a call, and there was a whole conference room full of people, and the chief financial officer did some quick calculations, and she estimated that during each of the three years, this physician probably referred about $10 million of cardiothoracic surgery services to the hospital. So just on a straight calculation, this would be a $30 million potential repayment, $10 million each year times three, because that's the amount of time that the physician's arrangement was not compliant because of the failure to have a signed written contract. And one of the individuals in the room said, well, what if we just don't pay it and we, we fix this prospectively? So, well, you still have the three-year period where you'd had an arrangement that was non-compliant according to the Stark Law, you could not have billed for those those referrals because you did not comply with the Stark Law billing statute. And because uh, you, you didn't comply, then you are required to repay it back. And if you retain the money, then the False Claims Act kicks in because if you retain money that you're not entitled to, it's called a reverse false claim. I'll have a couple of episodes dealing with the false claim. So I said, let's just run through the potential liability if the false claim is actually uh, applicable. Under the False Claims Act, then the damages there are treble damages. So you take the amount of reimbursement received times three. So $30 million times three, we're up to now $90 million, plus $23,331 per claim submitted. And I asked the CFO, how many claims do you think that you submitted? Uh, and in this case, obviously, with a cardiothoracic surgeon, this is based upon the DRG reimbursement. She said, oh, probably about 1,000 claims in the aggregate. So I said we would take the $23,331 times the 1,000 claims submitted. So now we're up to $23,331,000. You add the ninety million dollars, uh, which is the trouble damages, and now we're up to $113,331,000, $113,331,000. And this is all because of the failure to have a signed written contract. So that's how draconian the damages are under the Stark Law. Then you get into the fines and penalties as imposed by the False Claims Act if the False Claims Act is Im implicated. So running down the list, here are the list of the, the damages and the fines and the penalties. Uh, first off, as we indicated in this example, it's the denial of the reimbursement if this is a, a pre-claim discovery. It's the refund of the reimbursement received if the discovery is post-receipt of the reimbursement. There can also be $15,000 per claim submitted 
uh, based upon civil monetary penalties. And I'll have a, some sessions discussing the civil monetary penalties. And $100,000 civil monetary penalties for a circumvention scheme. And I'll talk in just a little bit about circumvention schemes. Uh, but those are the fines and penalties that the government will impose. There are other uh, damages that are going to occur with respect to these type of discoveries. First off, uh, if this becomes public because there is any type of settlement or a quitam case, then there's going to be a reputational damage because there will be articles in the paper talking about this issue. There's also legal fees, and I know of one case where the legal fees were about $25 million in legal fees. Plus also there's the operational costs, which could be in the millions, because now instead of your, your primary focus of business, you're now focusing on defending a Stark Law case. So you have people internally finding documents, uh, there's war room, rooms that are created, and also that you have the involvement of executives and people in leadership uh, that are focusing their attention on the defense of a Stark Law claim versus their primary business, which is to take care of patients. So you have the fines and penalties, but you also have the press damage, the legal fees, and the operational costs. So let me go back and talk a little bit about circumvention schemes, because these are arrangements that you are trying to ensure the referrals of DHS services where uh, you come up with a mechanism where you couldn't do it directly, but you're trying to do it indirectly. And the sole purpose is to get around the Stark Law. I'll give you two examples. Let's assume that we have Dr. A and Dr. B. So Dr. A and Dr. B go out to dinner and they say, well, let's each form our own labs and because of Stark, we can't refer to our own labs, but I'll refer to your lab, you refer to mine. So Dr. A owns lab X and Dr. B owns lab Y. And according to this agreement, Dr. A will refer all of his lab tests to Y in exchange for Dr. B referring all of his lab tests to lab X. So that would be a circumvention scheme. Another one would be, uh, by way of example, that you have an orthopedic surgeon knowing that the orthopedic surgeon could not own an MRI center. But the orthopedic surgeon has lunch with a primary care physician, and the orthopedic surgeon says, I want to create an MRI center. I can't own it, but you, primary care doc, why don't you own the center? I'll refer all of my services to this center, and then I will have an employment agreement with the center, and I can comply with the employment exception. And then I will also establish a management service organization to provide management services to this MRI center where basically I'm going to extract all of the margin or profit out of the center, but it's going to be under the guise of management services. There'll be a little leftover for you, primary care doctor, since you are the 100% owner. Again, in that case, there, that is a circumvention scheme for the orthopedic surgeon to extract the profit or margin from the technical MRI services. So that's where you would get into problems under the, uh, under the circumvention scheme. So let's hit with a couple of other examples. Let's assume that you have a W-2 employed physician and you have that physician on a productivity-based compensation arrangement. And throughout the series of these episodes, I'm going to be talking about work RVUs or WRVUs. RVUs stands for relative value unit. This is an assigned uh, number 
by Medicare that's based upon the value that they believe represents for the physician's services. So when I say worked RVU, it's the worked component of the RVU. Uh, there's also insurance and practice site expenses that goes into the RVU, but uh, for compensation purposes, it's typically the WRVU or the worked RVU. So let's assume that this hospital is paying this employed W-2 physician at the top of the fair market value for compensation per WRVU, but they discover that the hospital has been giving this employed physician full WRVU credit for the services rendered by the non-physician practitioner. And those services were not personally performed by the employed physician. They were performed by the NPP or the non-physician practitioner. And that would cause the compensation to possibly go outside of fair market value. So through the operation of the contract, by misassigning the work RVU values to the physician, uh, under the employment exception that could cause the compensation to exceed fair market value, then you have a stark problem because now you've compensated a physician above fair market value, which then you'd have to have a report. But I wanted, I wanted to queue up that in order to twist the facts a little bit to show that some of these stark violations, you also have other uh, violations that you will have to think about. So let's use the, the same example. But instead of giving the full credit for the non-physician practitioner, that through an, a compliance audit, it was discovered that 50% of the claims that the hospital was submitting for the services rendered by the physician did not meet medical necessity. Now, Medicare defines what is medical necessity, so let's assume that we, we've performed an audit and 50% of those claims do not meet the medical necessity guidelines. Well, technically, if you did not meet the Medicare medical necessity requirements, then those claims submitted should not have been submitted. And arguably, if this physician was under a productivity-based compensation arrangement, that physician should not have been credited for those work RVUs. So that would mean that if we're giving credit for services that are not deemed to be medically necessary, then the compensation paid to that physician may be outside of fair market value. The reason why this one gets a little tricky is now we're implicating a whole bunch of other issues. So not only do we have a potential Stark violation that you have to think about because now we've overcompensated uh, the physician, but also you have the repayment of claims. You have now submitted claims that you've determined are not medically necessary, and so therefore you have the potential to repay that the amount of reimbursement received to the Medicare contractor, uh, to, to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and possibly you'll have to report this through the Office of the Inspector General through the OIG's self-disclosure protocol process because they can handle uh, issues where medical necessity are, are in play. So not only would you have a stark potential violation, but you also could have some violations with respect to the, uh, the claims not meeting the medical necessity standards, so you'll have to repay those claims. Like in the first example, the claims submitted were fine. 
Uh, they met the medical necessity guidelines. It's just that we applied the work RVUs performed by the NPP to the physician and overcompensated the physician. In this analysis, the claims being submitted and the WRVUs credited to the employed physician did not meet the medical necessity criteria, so the physician technically should not have been credited for those work RVUs, but we still received the reimbursement. So there's a potential to make the repayments back to the government for all of the reimbursement received. And this could be the downstream re uh, reimbursement. The professional services are not uh, designated health services unless they are billed by the hospital, you know, based on provider-based. And I'm not going to go into detail here, but let's assume this is not provider-based. We just build those professional services directly through a, an owned group practice. So we're going to be making a repayment based upon those professional services, plus also looking at the technical reimbursement received for the referrals made by that physician into the hospital. So in effect, you've got a double whammy going on here. Uh, you've got the technical component that is at risk for being repaid as well as the professional component of being paid. So, you know, again, to kind of to round out what I've been talking about here with respect to fines and penalties is that uh, you've got the denial of the reimbursement. So if you find out pre-bill that you have an inappropriate financial arrangement, you can still provide those services. You just can't bill for them. Because a lot of times I get the question and said, well, we've, we've discovered a Stark Law violation. We have a whole host of claims uh, for services rendered. Uh, should we have provided those services? Well, yeah, you can provide those services. You just can't bill Medicare. Uh, if you've received the reimbursement for the period of time where the, re where the financial arrangement did not fully comply with an applicable Stark Law exception, then that reimbursement is subject to repayment. And as we've discussed, it's the $15,000 per claim under civil monetary penalties. You have the $100,000 for circumvention schemes as well as, and I don't want to underemphasize the fact of these ancillary effects, you know, the reputational issues that occur because it hits the press, then people in the press, they may not know the intricacies of the Stark Law. They're going to say, well, that hospital's fraudulent, well, again, going back to the failure to have a signed written contract that's enforceable under state law, is that hospital really a fraudulent hospital? Well, technically, no. They had a technical violation, but if they fail to repay the government once they have knowledge of the repayment, uh, then that could be fraud. And that's where the False Claims Act comes in. And again, we'll talk about the False Claims Act later, but if you discover a Stark Law violation and retain that money, if the government can show that you had actual knowledge that you were not entitled to retain or acted with deliberate ignorance or reckless disregard, then that's the knowledge factors under the False Claims Act. And that's when you get into the treble damages plus the $23,331 per claim submitted. And again, when you get into these, either the government's going to discover it or you're going to have somebody within your organization discover it and become a QUITAM relator. And the QUITAM relators can get uh, around 25%. And I'll talk with another episode about you know QUITAM, QUITAM cases, but they can get 25% of what the government received. So going back to that first scenario, where we had $113 million, if there's one person who reported that and the hospital did not repay, that one individual who's a QUITAM relator will get 113 
will get uh, 25% of $113 million plus. In addition to that, the Quitam Relators attorneys will get their attorney's fees. So those are the fines, penalties, and damages under the Stark Law. So now it's time for our Captain Integrity Punch Points. So these are the three things to emphasize for the Captain Integrity Punch Points for this episode. Number one, because damages under the Stark Law is focused on the reimbursement received from tainted referrals that did not meet fully a Stark Law exception, the damages can get very high. Punch point number two, don't get too cute uh, with the creation of the arrangements and create a workaround known as a circumvention scheme because that can get you into trouble as well as a $100,000 fine, in, including uh, all of those tainted referrals. And punch point number three, if the Stark Law violation is discovered, you should report and repay. The damages and the penalties are not worth the risk. So again, the three Captain Integrity Punch Points are number one, the damages are high because the focus is on reimbursement. Number two, don't get too cute and create a circumvention scheme. And lastly, number three, uh, self-report because the damages and penalties are not worth the risk. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity Punch Points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.